Mighty God, we praise you and we thank you that you are the Almighty One who has revealed himself to us, that we may be, O God, your servants who know you, trust you, and follow you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the beginnings, the book of Genesis, that give us so many things to think about concerning who you are and how you have revealed yourself. It is the foundation of much of what we find throughout the rest of Scripture. We ask, O Lord, that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you would illuminate our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to hear your word, to follow it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ who came, who lived, who died, who was resurrected and ascended and now intercedes for us. We so pray that the Holy Spirit would give us help in these things, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We look to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, in the first verse, as we deal lastly this morning with God, as God, the law-keeping covenant God. The scriptures say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In doing so, the Lord set in motion His will, his desires, his precepts and statutes and commandments, and all that goes into that which is pleasing to him. God's relationship to his covenant people is done through the law. It's done by his will, by his command. We may ask first, what is the law? The Westminster Confession says in chapter 19 and verse 5, The moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof, and that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect of the authority of God, the Creator, who gave it. Neither doth Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So the law is given by the Creator, and even under the gospel, we find that Christ doesn't dissolve the law, but that rather he strengthens the obligation to it. The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. It is how he relates to his creatures. The moral law, in and of itself, the Ten Commandments, is the declaration of the will of God to mankind. And it directs and binds everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience to it. That is what God desires. The will of God is basically an extension of his character. It is who he is. So when one deals with the law, they're dealing with what God requires of them to be like him. So if one wants to be like God, he keeps the law. If one does not want to be like God, then he is lawless. A law is that which directs or prescribes or controls the creature. Now, the law in general, or the beginnings of God's covenant relationship with men, began in the garden. And everything in Genesis moves towards glorifying God and the establishment of God's covenant blessings. Now, after the fall, 
because men fell, because Adam disobeyed and did not keep the law, everything then moves to a restoration of those covenant blessings. But God's covenant stipulations before and after the fall, as we find them in Genesis, ultimately were formulated into the legal code of Israel. Oftentimes people think that suddenly God decided to come up with a number of laws from Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers so that the people of Israel would have something new. Because we find, don't we, in the New Testament that Paul says that they were without the law before and it was not until the law that we have the Mosaic Covenant. Well, what we forget is that God had given in Genesis a number of foundational elements that will ultimately bring to pass all of the particulars of the law. Everything that we find in Genesis is what we'll find in the rest of the scripture concerning the law. Even the Ten Commandments themselves, and we'll find that out in a minute. The means by which God would bring blessing is through the obedience of his covenant people. And that obedience required certain standards for discerning good and evil. So they had to know what was good and they had to know what was evil. We cannot do without the law, otherwise we'd never know what is good and what is evil. The law demonstrates God's character and thus demonstrates to us what is good and what's evil. Let's think about the law in general. The law in general in Genesis. Here are a few examples. Um, there are quite a few of them. We'll go over some of them. The law in general, where God gave commandments in Genesis or underlying foundational thoughts concerning those laws to various people and in different circumstances. God gave commandments to the parents in the garden in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And he judged them on the basis of their compliance with the law in chapter 3. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So that comprises both it and the punishment that will come from not obeying it. Genesis 3, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now that would have been normally relational, because he would have walked with Adam in the cool of the day, but Adam wasn't around on that day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you shouldn't eat? The man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceives me, and I ate. The blame game begins. But at that point, we see that God had given them commandments, and then he had judged them on their compliance to those commands. Abraham was chosen to reverse the disobedience of the parents, Adam and Eve, by obeying all the commandments and statutes of God, and ultimately, that will come to fruition in his seed, Jesus. Genesis 26 says, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because, why? 
Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So, Abraham was in compliance with that. Throughout Genesis, individuals served God by obeying his commandments to them. The general designation that's used for compliance to God's commands and walking in that way is very much that. They walked with God. Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. That was in Genesis 5.22. In Genesis 6.9, Noah walked with God. In Genesis 17.1, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. What does he want him to do? Walk before me and be blameless. When Adam was in compliance with following God's law, what did he do? He walked with God in the cool of the day. So throughout the book, it's demonstrated that those who followed God's law walked with him. Disobedience to God's will, that is, doing any kind of evil, brought all sorts of things. A curse of death in 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Why? For the day if you eat of it, you shall surely die. Disobedience also brought the flood. Genesis 6.3. The flood came. It also brought plagues in Genesis 12. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues. It brought judgment on the nations in Genesis 15:14, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. It brought judgment on sinners in Genesis 38 and verse 7. But... Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. It brought judgment on sinners. It brought warning of death for adultery. In Genesis 20 and verse 7, Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you don't restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. There was also a reckoning for those who were guilty. Genesis 42:22. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. They were aware that doing bad things, bad things would happen. Ultimately, in dealing with Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all that Moses does in putting together what we call the cultic law of Israel, the people of God find that approval from God in the sinful world requires certain cultic acts. Genesis shows many of these, which are later incorporated in those other books into what Israel is supposed to do. For example, I'm going to give you a few of them. The Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was given in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. Right? Israel was to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was given in Genesis. Seasons were ordered for service and worship. Genesis 1, 14, it says, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And when we look throughout Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and, and we see all of that they did with days and seasons and years, and all of the different time periods, we find that that has its basis in creation. 
sacrificial worship in and of itself was at the center of the believer's gratitude towards God. That was later incorporated into doing something at the temple and the tabernacle previous that had to be done in order for atonement to be made. God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins in chapter 3. Cain and Abel brought their offerings in the right time or in the process of time or on the right day in Genesis 4.3. Noah sacrificed the sweet savor offering in chapter 8. The people were instructed never to eat blood in chapter 9 and verse 4. God says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Later on we'll find that that's important. The patriarchs built many altars to attest to God's presence and his promise. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The altar would be very important for the sacrifices that were going to go on at the tabernacle in the temple later. Substitution with animal sacrifice was taught on what would become the temple mount, as a matter of fact. Genesis 22 Right? Where Abraham was going to kill his son. Then he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering, as one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And ultimately, that is where the temple was situated. So, we find that when he gets there, he doesn't sacrifice Isaac, but instead... Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So there were offerings done on the mount where later the temple would be set. The covenant was initiated by sacrifice and by oath. In Genesis 15 it says, So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And you remember, he sacrificed all of them. And all of these things in some way come into establishment in the sacrificial system later. Treaties and boundaries were established by sacrifice. Genesis 31:54. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and they stayed all night on the mountain. And even oil was poured out on the altar. Genesis 28:18. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. Later we'll find that the Levites would do much the same. Places of worship became important in and of themselves. Be'er Lahai Roy in Genesis 24, and Beth-El in Genesis 28, and even false places of worship, like the Tower of Babel, were ruined. And later we find that many of the kings will destroy the pagan altars that were around. Priestly blessings were oracles from God. Genesis 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram, the God, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all to the priestly blessing that would later come in number six, come from what Melchizedek had done. And even tithing, giving a tenth. It was given before there was any law. Genesis 14:20. And blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tithe of all. Circumcision was a sacred rite, and it wasn't to be profaned. 
And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. Remember when they said that to the king of Shechem, when his son had raped Jacob's daughter, Dinah. There, circumcision was seen as sacred. They couldn't intermix or intermarry with one who was not circumcised. And later we'll find out that that becomes a major point of contention, even when Ezra returns, finds the Israelites had intermixed and intermarried. Intercession served to bring about conformity to righteousness. Remembering that Abraham barters with God and he intercedes on behalf of the city. Solemn oaths were part of cultic life in general. Genesis 50 and verse 25. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And we find also that prayer brought deliverance. Genesis 32.11 Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. Proclamation at the altar began in the Old, in, in the Old Testament Genesis narratives. Genesis 21.33 Then Abraham planted a terrorist tree in Beersheba and there he called on the name of the Lord. Religious vows were to be kept. In Genesis 28, Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I'll come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So, oaths were important. As a matter of fact, in Genesis, we even find Moses hinting of the dietary laws that would be later found. The sinew of the hip wasn't eaten. And there was a distinction between clean animals and unclean animals. Things you could eat, things you couldn't eat. And the sin of intoxication was also deplored. Remember when Noah was drunk. Genesis 32, 32. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank. So all of these things are set in Genesis that come later to just be more particularly explained. They're not new. They're just more explained. Clearer. Uncleanness was to be shunned. See the laws in Leviticus 12 to 19. Household idols were to be removed. That's what they did in Genesis 35. Homosexuality forbidden. Genesis 19. Incest is rebuked. Uncovering the nakedness of the father. Marriage with Canaanites were prohibited. Separation from pagan nations was required. Avoidance of pagan superstition was commanded. And even idols were burned and whores of the land were burned. Genesis 38, 24, it says, And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your sister-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. And so Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So all of these things set the stage, so to speak, for all of the particular laws that we find throughout the rest of the Old Testament for Israel. And ultimately, there is a, a great argument to be made then that even before the law, these things were normal because they are representing God's likeness. They are in and of themselves demonstrating 
a conformity to holiness. Something is certainly then to be said for all of these things that give way to much of the law and case laws throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and the retelling of the law, and how all of that worked. The Decalogue itself, the Ten Commandments itself, are found in the events of Genesis. If you look throughout Genesis, you will find all Ten Commandments. For example, God, the first commandment, was recognized as sovereign over all things, and he would not tolerate false gods. Genesis 35 says, And God said to Jacob, Arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. And Jacob said to his household and all that were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the day which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands, and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which is by Shechem. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. They put away the false gods because there's only one God. Secondly, Humankind was made in the image of God, and so it would be futile to make images of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The image of God is placed in men, not in things. Or the Sabbath day, commemorated in its creation served as the sign of the new creation. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had done and rested on the seventh day from which he had done. And he blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Or, Abraham called on the name of the Lord. God's name is attached to his will. And doing his will all throughout the book of Genesis is found in following his word, which is, in fact, not taking the name of the Lord in vain. So, just there, we have the first four commandments. Are the rest of them in Genesis? The other six? They are. People were to honor their fathers and mothers rather than live in moral abandonment to them such as in Genesis 9 and in Genesis 35. And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went in and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Terrible. He dishonored his father, and Jacob tells him later that he has. They were to honor their father and mother. Killing was evil. How many times do we find that in the Scriptures? Now Cain talked with Abel his brother and came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Killing was wrong. Committing adultery was prohibited. Joseph ran from it. Abimelech was rebuked for it. And it was under the penalty of death. Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my, life, my wife. Now therefore here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Because he knew that it was a wrong and evil act. Stealing was wrong. And that demonstrates itself even further throughout Genesis in kidnapping. Genesis 14, 12. 
they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. They stole Lot. They took him away, even by kidnapping. Or, Genesis 40 and 15, For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that should put me into the dungeon. That was Joseph. So even in being stolen away, we find stealing. What about bearing false witness? There's a lot of that. False accusation, false testimony, being deceptive, being destructive, lying. Please say that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake and that I might live because of you. That was a lie. Or when Jacob went in with the skins on his arm and on his chest to be hairy, deceiving, that was a lie. Bearing false witness was evil. Lastly, coveting. Coveting was wrong. Genesis 3, 6-8. So a woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise. She took of it and she ate. Coveting. All of the commandments are set there in Genesis. They're just later placed down in a tablet. But they weren't non-existent. People often think that then when they run over to Romans that suddenly we have the law stated. Or Paul is saying, see, there was no law beforehand. Now there is, now there is with the Ten Commandments. Before people were a law to themselves. Well, yes, but we find that all of the commandments are demonstrated in the book of Genesis. As a matter of fact, many of the situational laws, or what we would call the case laws, are found throughout Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch, and they have their basis in Genesis. The foundation of marriage, right? That's found in Genesis. The problem with two or more wives and harems and intermarriage and all the problems that way, all found in Genesis. Levite customs for carrying on the name of the deceased is found in Genesis 38. Inheritance laws and possession of property, not taking somebody else's goods, purchasing the cave, selecting from true heirs, as Jacob did, being cheated out of a proper inheritance, as Esau was, how wages worked under Laban, the right of transfer, where Jacob wanted Esau to sell his birthright to him. All of those things are in Genesis. That's what gives Leviticus its foundation. Or how about just loving one another? Hating your brother. Or a sister's tension between one another with Rachel and Leah. Or what of quarrels with the men of Lot and the men of Abram. How to treat servants and slaves and handmaids and submission to masters, all of those are found in Genesis. The treatment of strangers, even in Lot's treatment of the angels who came. All of these are in Genesis. So, the law itself is demonstrated throughout the entire book of Genesis, and it gives the foundation for everything else that's going to come to pass. Well, what does the Bible teach about the basic aspects of the law? We see that everything's found in Genesis, but there's also some other more clear renderings of these things in other places in the scriptures. So what does the Bible teach basically about that? Well, the Hebrew word commonly rendered law occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. It primarily signifies instruction. The Greek word 
also occurs in the New Testament almost 200 times. And it means anything allotted or apportioned or used in prescription or used as a law. In the Psalms, it's used for all of the word of God. Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. It's used for governing actions, even in our present sinful state. Romans 7.23 But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul talks about the struggle that we have in our present life that way. There's the law of nature, Romans 2 and 14. For when Gentiles who don't have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Or works required for the law. No one's justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Even the relationship that we have with God in Christ and the way and manner that it is worked out is by faith, but by the law as we'll find through Christ. And the law is also designated as the whole of the Mosaic dispensation. John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The general character of the law throughout the Bible is that it is unbending and that it is uncompliant. All law comes from God. The law of God is one. It's not many. God is one. His law is one. Everything that men do to follow what God says in the commandments and statutes and so forth, there's no conflict between any of the precepts of the law. One law doesn't contradict the other. There's no difference in authority with it, right? James says, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point is guilty of all. It's one law. When we lie, we break all of the law because the law is one. When we lust, we break all of the law because the law is one. It comprehends all conceivable moral acts at once. But your commandment is exceedingly broad. Psalm 119 says, it enjoins all duties, binding on all rational creatures. The law in and of itself being exceedingly broad in that way is for us spiritual. Calvin said, the divine law given to our minds is the proper regulation of the principle requisite to a righteous observant of it. Righteous observant. We righteously must observe the law. And the law is always right. It's the standard. It's the duty. It's holy. It's being just and good. It's perpetually obligatory for us. Our obligation to it is forever. People think that Jesus destroyed the law or did away with the law. No. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, not only does he say, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I didn't come to destroy but fulfilled, but he also shows that those people who he doesn't know are those who are lawless. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The law, like its author, is supreme. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And it's, it's itself is practicable. You can do it. Can you do it perfectly? Different question altogether. But can we do it? By the Spirit, we can. Adam kept the law until he fell. His failure to obey it 
now is not changeable to the law itself, but only that he became sinful. And as a result of sin, that's the problem. Listen to Romans 7.10. The commandment, the commandment, the law, which was to bring life, I found brought death. What is Paul saying there? The commandment in and of itself, the law in and of itself, was that which would bring life. So why do we see death? as a result of the law. Why is the law always looked down that way and grace lifted up? Why is it that way? Well, it's that way because the law which would have brought life if Adam had kept it brings death now because we're fallen. And because we already are fallen and because we're sinful and because we're broken, we then cannot in that way keep the law perfectly. We're already starting in the pit. So as a result, the law can't bring life because of the weakness of the flesh, that Paul says. The law isn't bad. The law is a reflection of the character of God. Is that bad? No, that's not bad. The law is good. The law brings life if one uses it lawfully. But because we are fallen, something else must take place. But the law is useful for the Christian. It's a rule of life. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law, the psalmist says. The law convicts us of sin. Moreover, Paul says in Romans 5.20, the law entered that the offense might abound. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. In Galatians 3.24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, Thomas Watson says that very thing. The law is a star that leads one to Jesus Christ as the Magi followed the one in the wilderness. We can't be justified by the law because we're fallen. We can't be justified by the law because we are sinful. Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why is it that we're not justified by the law? Well, we could be because it brings life, but because we don't keep it perfectly, it brings death. Because we're judged by it. It's not the fault of the law that we can't keep it. It would be like saying it's not the fault of God's character that we're imperfect. It's our problem that we're imperfect. What I want to do, I will not do. But I agree with the law that it is good. The law demonstrates how wicked we are. Is the law then against the promise of God? Is the law against grace? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. The law is a good thing. But what made it weak? Why is it that we can't keep it? Well, he says in Romans 8.3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemns sin in the, in the flesh. So because of our weakness, we are not able to be justified by the law, but we are able to be sanctified by it. We're justified by faith in Christ who kept the law. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we are able to be sanctified by the law. For believers, it's used in restraining their corruptions because it forbids sin. It denounces the most fearful curses against those who love and practice lawlessness. It helps us 
see what we must do to be pleasing before God. It sanctifies us. We are to be conformed into the image of Christ. The law helps us do that. Christians are not under law to be justified, but they are under law to Christ. Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say, Jesus says. How can somebody be a child of God and not do what Jesus says? Those who don't keep the law, who are against the law, or say the law is not for the Christian today, we call them antinomians. Those who are against the law, want to play something instead of. But Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4. Those things demonstrate the good and the evil. Without the law, we would not know that. And the law ultimately then for us demonstrates the righteousness of Christ's work fulfilled for his people. Adam failed at every point in upholding the law. But he only sinned once. But yes, when you break the law, you break all of the law. He failed at every point in it. Jesus comes as the second Adam, the second man, and he comes to fulfill the law. The plan of salvation by grace in Christ Jesus is so arranged and ordered that obedience to the moral law sincerely rendered with evangelical motive meets a divine reward. So Christ, for us, gives us our reward. We're going to be heirs with him. Romans 4, 24 and 25 says, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Jesus comes and he fulfills the law perfectly. And God, for the elect, takes that and imputes it to our account and sees it like before he had seen us as we were Adam, as we have committed the sin in and of ourselves, and then compounded that sin by all of the wicked things that we do out of a fallen heart. But with Jesus, he looks and he imputes to his elect all of the work that Jesus does. And thus, that is why we are justified in his sight. We are seen as perfect, not on what we have done, but what Christ did for us. He must not just die. Dying for sin is not enough. Jesus must actively keep the law perfectly, and he did. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Now we serve God that way. Since we have this kingdom given to us, since we are given it, now we serve him. We follow his law. We do what he says, those things that are right. And as 1 Timothy 1.8 says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. It is a good thing. It is a right thing. Jesus has fulfilled the law for our justification. And he gives us his spirit to work in us his commands that we might be conformed to his image for our sanctification. And so in thinking about how the law applies to us, let's look at just a couple of things and wrap up this idea of how then we use the law well. Jesus had done it for us for sanctification and justification. 
and for giving us the Spirit and all the benefits. Everything we do, all of our good works, are wholly from the Spirit of Christ. But there are works. There are things that we do. Where a duty is commanded, we are to follow it. God commands us to do something. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. We are to do those things. Honor your mother and father. That's commanded. We do that. But on the contrary, sin is also forbidden. For example, not honoring your father and mother is a sin. Honoring your father and mother is the command. Not honoring them is the sin. Not that God says what is not is okay. That's, it's not okay not to do the law or things that are in opposition to it. He says to honor your father and mother. Well, the opposite to that is sin. Not honoring your father and mother. He doesn't have to say that. If you don't honor your mother and father, it's going to be sin to you. All he has to do is tell us what is commanded of us. And by doing those things, we are following what is the character of God. That which is forbidden in the law of God is never to be done. Our personal obedience is required as Christians. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul of sin shall die. Do you sin? First John chapter 2 said, he, is a, he who is born of God doth not sin. Do you sin? It's not for justification, though. It's for personal holiness. There is never an excuse to not be like God at any time or at any point. And it's better than even to suffer the greatest affliction than to commit the least of sins. But the Spirit promises us, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation is overtaking you except such as common demand. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So even in how we are to be keeping the law, how we are to do that, in every single temptation that we have to not keep it, God gives us a way out of it. Because in denying ourselves in those things, and God gives us a wonderful illustration of that in Jesus in the wilderness, and how he denied... Jesus could have used his power. He could have done whatever he wanted to do. He could have set up an entire palace with slaves and everything right there to serve him if he was hungry by the word of his mouth. But he didn't, because that would not have demonstrated he was the son of the Most High, who he had to wait for his commands and follow his statutes and commandments and so forth. The Spirit gives us a way of escape. The Spirit aids us. And in the end of that temptation, Jesus was attended to by angels themselves that God had sent to strengthen him. Whatever God commands, it's always our duty to perform. As we have opportunity to do our duty before God in every circumstance, we should desire to perform it. We can't say we're tired. We can't say we're lazy. We can't say we're busy. All of those excuses run to disobedience. We should always be in a right state of mind and heart to do what is required as any occasion offers us to do wherever we are. That's why the scriptures say, but, one, but exhort one another daily while it is called today. Now, in the very moment. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. Remember that sermon? Redeeming the time because the days are evil. Every moment, every opportunity we have, we should desire to do good and to follow God's law. The aim of it, why we do it, is conformity to God's character. In a word that God uses, to be holy. 
Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord, your God. But he who has called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Holiness of heart, holiness in everything that we do, whether it be being a mom, being a dad, being a husband, being a wife, working how we should work at work, being whatever it is, in whatever situation God has so placed us, holiness of heart is conformity to the law in every situation. That's what God requires of us. And ultimately, in that way, we not only love God, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then, out of that, we even love one another. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Love is ultimately the fulfilling of the law. Would men and God say to us that we are loving? In truly following the law, we're demonstrating those things. We're demonstrating a love to God and demonstrating a love to our fellow men. Love is the fulfillment of the law in general. All of the things that we do to be holy and to be righteous and to be perfect and to be more sanctified is ultimately fulfilled in the way that we love men and love God. If we do those things in a manner which is holy, because he is holy, we'll fulfill the law. And thus, we're conformed to his image. And in being conformed to his image, we become like him. And in being like him, we are more sanctified. And that is the purpose of the law. God has given us a rule book, rules and guides, that don't just demonstrate rules and guides in and of themselves, but demonstrate his holy character. The law is simply what you would do to be like God, to be perfect, to be holy, to be righteous. It is a wonderful thing that we have the Lord Jesus Christ who was perfect for us so that we can now follow the law. The law was a tutor, led us to Christ. Now Christ takes us by the hand and leads us back to keep the law, to do the things which he says if you call me Lord, Lord, you will do them. And ultimately, those things are fulfilled in our love to God, in our love to men, in following the law. This is the way that Genesis demonstrates the law. The law is not just this hard, rigid thing that people make it out to be. If we understood as Moses did, as the Israelites did in their dispensation of having the actual tablets themselves, they knew that the meaning of the law was holiness to the Lord. It's the band that the high priest wore over his brow. And they knew that as Leviticus told them, they're to love their neighbor as themselves. A new commandment? A new commandment in Christ because of what he's done for us. But something that has never been stated before? That's not what the New Testament ever teaches us. Jesus comes to fulfill it, to give it to us and give us the ability to keep it. That we may be more holy and we may become like him. Let's pray. Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we thank you that you've given us a mirrored reflection of yourself in the law. Pray that in looking at these statutes and these commandments and 
these precepts, you would help us, O Lord, be more like you. Be like who you are, holy. Be like who you are, perfect. Be like who you are, the God of love who has showered down upon us your wonderful blessing of your Son, who gives us the ability, because of the work that he had done and his sacrifice, to be like you. We thank you that you've changed our heart, changed our mind, and caused us to be made right before you. And that now, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us, that we would not simply say grace, 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 but that we would not only look to you in faith for our justification, but that you would help us by your Spirit to keep your law. You are the God of the covenant who covenants with us by your law. It's how you relate. We pray that you would help our eyes to see, as the psalmist says, wonderful things in your law and do great and mighty things which we know of not in our life and in our families and in our church and in our workplaces and help us, O Lord, to glorify you in all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.